Hey everybody, Mind Rolling, I'm Raghu Marcus. And And I'm David Silver, hello and welcome to a very, very... Sounds like Brinkley and Hutley or Huntley. None of the the people out there will know who either of those two gentlemen are. I mean, it's, you know, it's like you say the Beatles and people go, why are you talking about insects? Um, Anyway, welcome to Mind Rolling. We have a wonderful guest, a friend, a family member, a, 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 a wonderful person, John Krishna Bush who we will now refer to as Krishna throughout this podcast. Although, are, is is so, that okay? Yeah, Krishna. Well, my professional name is John Bush, but uh, obviously friends and family call me Krishna. So, uh, you know, as long as people know that John Bush, the filmmaker, and Krishna Bush, the friend, are the same person, not a problem. There you go. But most people are calling you John, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's how I introduce myself. I mean, but uh, of course, you know, I, I love being called by my spiritual name. It was the name Maharaja gave me. So um, whichever you feel comfortable with, not a problem. Me? I mean, God, you know, we uh, to tell everybody, here's how far, I don't, I'm not going to say the exact year. <laughs> we met a long time ago at Maharaji Nimkaroli Maharaji's ashram. And uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> Again, I just want to uh, I want to tell this story because it was what uh, this this is what I was thinking about uh, when he and I talked the other day, and we uh, which was that we came back from India at the same time, and we came back with Ramdas and and a, and a couple of other couples. There must have been eight or ten of us, right? At that time, we went back through London and so on. Yeah, in Dubai. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then we uh, so we met up at my father's farm. And he had gone back to see Maharaji, so we had the whole joint to ourselves. And six of us settled at that farm and made believe we hadn't left India because we just put everything up like we were living in India and wore our dresses and did the whole nine yards. And we were like farming and farming. We were like organic gardening and and so on and having the time of our lives. And, And Krishna and I... I don't know why or how we got this, and I'm still very attached to it. We got the New York Times, and this was like a big thrill, and we'd have our chai every morning with the New York Times somehow. And uh, we, uh, I mean, we lived in teepees in the forest, too. It was just really, really crazy. So uh, this is really full circle for me uh, to now to really introduce you and you and you are definitely part of we i don't know if we've mentioned this to you before but all the people that we have as part of mindpod network they are called our low-hanging fruit friends and you oh, absolutely you yes so uh this this means to somebody who is listening to us you always have people on that that you know you've been close to all these years that that's easy why don't you go find deepak chopra or something and talk to him <laughs> And and we went, yeah, low hanging fruit. You're right, absolutely right. <laughs> so, um, so welcome. Yes, that's a long. Great know. to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast. I think it's an amazing thing you guys are doing. Thank you. Really, have to say it's really uh, you know, uh, I, I love this technology. It's something. It's it's something that I think is really getting out there and very. Uh, very scalable and very portable and, uh, you know, available on iTunes, all these things. And right. And it's yeah. really, yeah. You know, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. yeah. You know yeah. what? I want to, we do this with everybody who comes on. We want to get an idea of your transformation moments, like before you went off to India and what was going on. We talked about the stressors in our lives and what were the triggers that got us 
uh, into that next uh, dimension, which I spark and trust is what was the spark that, you know, then suddenly there was that kind of trust that you could never go backwards on no matter what happened. And uh, by the way, everybody out there, there's a book that we're putting together called Love Everyone, which has many of our stories of going meeting Ramdas and other people, not meeting Ramdas, but getting over to see our guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and uh, how they got through on the hippie trail. And it's an amazing book, this book that will be out in November of this year. This is the first announcement, and it's uh, fitting that Krishna is with us because he's part uh, of that whole experience. And I'm going to ask you uh, a little later to tell one story that I do remember that is absolutely critical for everybody to hear. But can you just start and tell us about just where you were at as a, as a kid and what happened? Okay. Well, I grew up in Buffalo, Buffalo, New York, Queen City of the Lakes, second largest city in New York State, but very, very far away from New York City, really more a Midwestern city. Uh, than anything. People, the regional accent is more like people in Detroit or Chicago or something like that. But it was an industrial city. Uh, I grew up in a simple family. Uh, my parents were really highly intelligent people, but never had gone to college. And that wasn't really part of uh, our life. You know, uh, my father was self-educated, uh, had a lot of different interests, but, you know, they really, I really, I was the first member of my family to go to, to, to go to college. And, uh, but anyway, it was, uh, I had a hard time with school. I was, I was really more of a self-learner. I kind of just, you know, used to go to the library, used to, you know, go back and read newspapers from, you know, I mean, on, on microfiche, sort of read about all the major historical things that happened, the different world wars and so on. On my own, I would go to the museums, things like this. It was the way I was educating myself, but it didn't quite... I didn't have really have study habits as such because I'd never really been raised to believe that they were necessary. I was sort of able to cruise through elementary school. And then I went to a Jesuit high school and it was like four years of Latin, three years of Greek, two years of French and German, science, all this stuff. And after about a year and a half, I just really couldn't hack it anymore. And I went to a public high school and, uh, and there I was able to cruise through because it, the standards weren't that high. But, um, I really wasn't able to get into a great college, you know, uh, and uh, and also I, you know, I really, the, the idea then was that I would put myself through college, and so uh, I had to work and and go to school. So anyway, I went. Uh, I mean, do we really want to get into the the whole autobiographical thing, or is that okay, or? You know, yeah. actually, skip to the good parts, like okay. like when you first took acid and stuff. <laughs> okay, all right, sure. Well, okay. Well, anyway, the point is that I finally I was working. I was working in steel plants, okay, and I was working doing a a day uh, and then going to school at nights in a writing program, and then I wound up going to uh, you know my, my one of my teachers really liked me and said, hey, why aren't you in the day school? I said, well, you know, this is at this is at SUNY Buffalo. So anyway, he wrote me a letter, wrote a letter to the president, told him to put me in the day school. So I got in. And then that kind of changed my life. I really wound up, uh, you know, hanging out with a lot of really extraordinary writers and poets and things like that. And kind of transformed me into a, a place where I felt like I was being recognized for who I was and able to get a lot of good tutoring and mentoring. And, uh, and then in 1960. Five, I guess it was, uh, there was this lecture that was posted for um, 
Richard Alpert coming to my university, speaking through the chemistry department about about LSD, you know. And at that point, I had been experimenting with mescaline, psilocybin, things like that, but I'd never taken acid. And uh, so I went to the lecture because I thought, God, this is this I mean, the chemistry department. That's amazing. <laughs> so I went there. Were about, there were about seven hundred people there. It was a large lab. It was one of those large, huge, you know. Uh, laboratory uh, auditoriums and uh, the place was packed and Richard Alpert uh, was there and dressed in a tie and coat and he started speaking about the wonders of LSD and uh, but mainly he was talking about his expanded consciousness and that's what I found to be really fascinating you know and that we had only we only used about three percent of our brains the rest of it was there in potential to be to be you know accessed and that uh, this wonder drug that he was being an evangelist for was the way to begin to access that. And at some point, at this giant golden retriever walked right into the right in the door and right up to the demonstration table where he was speaking. And he picked up this dog and he put it right on the right on the table in front of him while he was talking. And then he started stroking this dog, and the dog went into a complete point, tail sticking out nose up in the air, you know, and the dog stayed like that for an hour and a half. No, really? I'm not kidding you. An hour and a half. Who did, you know, Richard Alpert did this? Richard Alpert did this. And I, I'm thinking, this has got to be a trick dog. Of course, he must, this must, he must take this to every lecture he gives, you know, <laughs> you know? and uh, I mean, and I said, no, but that's not true. The guy seems really genuine. He wouldn't be that, he wouldn't be, it's not that, he wouldn't be that tricky, but I couldn't understand it. I've never seen anything like it before, you know, wow. and, uh, and uh, he talked for about three hours, and an hour and a half of it was this dog standing there while he was just, he just kept petting no. it and talking, you know? <laughs> yeah, really. You know, and uh, so anyway, that night uh, I got a phone call from a good poet friend of mine, Danny Zimmerman, and he said, hey, listen, uh, I just happened to have some of this great Owsley acid that just came into town. And uh, so he said, would you like to try some you know, with me? And so I did, and he was a great guide, and he really kind of directed me inward you know, and uh, I kept coming out and saying, hey, he said, just go back inside, close your eyes, go back inside. He had great, great music. And it was a deeply, profoundly spiritual, mystical experience for me, not, akin to nothing I'd ever experienced before. Yeah. And, um, and uh, it sort of set up a, you know, a whole uh, method for me to really use psychedelics as a kind of, in a sacramental way. And this was really before... This was 1965, really, it wasn't. It was before the sort of major wave, you know. So uh, so I learned early on that this was really about, you know, you kind of have to go through the death of the ego and come out the other side into the sort of paradisical vision. And, uh, and then I learned that that was the method. That's how you did it. So from that point on, uh, that was the sort of, those were the keys to the kingdom. And uh, so for several years, I was doing psychedelics and... Uh, and it was a, really a form of prayer for me. It was really, really, really wonderful. But, you know, it was also going out at a very convulsive time in the culture. I mean, it was during the war. It was, I was very much involved in the anti-war movement. And, uh, you know, the riots in the cities and all of this kind of stuff that we all know about that was happening at the same time, I'm also experiencing this kind of inner, inner uh, discovery and this kind of mystical experience coupled with this kind of sort of violent social change that was happening. So the two things were really kind of 
working against each other in some ways. And uh, I decided at some point that I couldn't keep doing psychedelics forever, that I really needed to find another way to be able to uh, you know, access this, these levels of consciousness, which is what Roy Das was really talking about. He wasn't just talking about LSD. So I'd never seen him. I had never seen him again. And I heard he had gone to India and he had come back as Baba Ramdas. This was the first time he came back. But, you know, I sort of, I didn't pay much attention to it. I was really interested in going to see Kala Rinpoche. I had some friends of mine who had come back from India who had studied with him. And so I really felt like, okay, well, this still exists in India. I'm going to go to India. And so we went. And Mira, my, you know, my friend at that point, uh, the two of us traveled overland to India. We flew to London, and then we um, traveled overland to India, which has a lot of stories in itself. But when we got to India, for the, the actually the, the, the first day we were in Delhi, the first night we slept in the Golden Temple in um, Amritsar, which they let us in, and we spent the night listening to the, the Sab Gita being uh, chanted all night long, which was marvelous. And then we went to, uh, we were staying in the Palace Heights. We just wound up there. I never, I didn't know what, we just wound up there. I didn't know what hotel to stay in, and that's where we wound up. And then we walked out, and uh, there was, uh, I ran into Sharon Salzberg and Billy Rosenberg. Uh, Billy was a friend of mine in Buffalo, where I'd gone to school at the university. And I knew Sharon a little bit, but not, not, not too well, but I knew Billy better. And then Sharon said, hey, listen, there's this yoga conference going on. Maybe you want to know, maybe you should go and check it out. So we went to this yoga conference. And, of course, it was the sort of like supermarket of all these gurus and yogis and lamas and all the sort of major names were there. Satchitananda, Muktananda, you know, uh, uh, several of the high lamas and, uh, uh, and lots of people. And then across the street, uh, Krishnamurti had set up a tent. And he was talking about uh, just how all this was bunk, how you didn't need any of these people. Yeah. And so it was really, this is my second day, this is now my third day in India, and wow. I had this really enormous sampling of uh, all of the sort of mystical strains that were available to Westerners. So, uh, And then in the middle of that, uh, Sharon came back and said, hey, listen, I just found out about these Goenka courses. There's this teacher this teaching this, med this Burmese meditation practice in Bodhgaya, which is the place where the Buddha uh, was enlightened. And it's a 10-day course, and it's an intensive, and she described it. It was like 12 hours a day of meditating, you know. So anyway, uh, I decided to go, and Mira and I jumped on a train with Sharon, and we went to, uh, we went to Bodhgaya. And uh, this was in uh, December of 1970. And uh, so... Anyway, so we got to Bodhgaya, this little town, this little kind of dusty town with all of these temples and things there. And I walked down and I uh, looked in a tea shop and uh, I saw this guy and it looked like Richard Alpert. <laughs> and, and he was there, you know. And uh, so I said, wow, he's here. That's amazing. You know, but I didn't make any more of a, I didn't think any more of it. I just figured he was in Bodhgaya and with a bunch of people all dressed in white, some of whom I had seen on a trip over turned out to be Dwarka and Tenny and some of these other people, all dressed in white, also traveling overland at that time. So anyway, the next day, the, the Goenka retreat started, and uh, and it turned out that, you know, uh, Richard Alpert, now Baba Ramdas, was also taking the retreat, and uh, and uh, with, a bunch of, with a bunch of people that he had come with. 
And uh, so we started doing the retreat. And after about the third day, I said, I got to tell him, you know, that I, about my connection with him. I mean, that this is sort of started with him. So we went out into the garden. He was talking. We were talking. And I said, hey, listen, you know, the first time I ever met you, the first time I ever saw you was in Buffalo in 1965. And he said, the dog, right? Uh, <laughs> I said, yeah, the dog, the dog. Oh, that's he, terrific. he said, I couldn't believe it myself. He said, he said, he said, he said, you know, he said, when I gave, when I used to give those lectures, I used to take a, a, a small dose of LSD just to put me in the mood of doing oh, it. Geez. And obviously the dog was responding. Connected. He was getting a contact high from me, you know, and uh, I said, well, that's, that's amazing. And, you know, so I just thought that was, that he even remembered. I thought I was touched by that. And I said, well, you know, I have to tell you, the reason I'm at this retreat is because I really need to find another method of attaining those places that you had talked about at that lecture without taking LSD, because I can't keep doing this for the rest of my life. And he said, well, you know what? That's the reason I'm here, too. <laughs> so that was really? nice. That was, wow. the, that was sort of the first, uh, that was the first connection that, we, that I had had with him. And, uh, and, you know, we had a few other chats during that time. We wound up, I think, doing four of those 10-day retreats there together. And then after that, we left on this bus. I was just basically going with him to get a ride to Delhi. And uh, then, of course, we met Maharaji along the way. It's a famous you know, you bus story. story. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of you that uh, go to ramdas.org and have gone to the media library, I think, I don't know if you can find it by bus story, but uh, there's a lot of instances with Ramdas telling that story because it's uh, implicit in that story is him thinking he was making a decision to go either to Delhi or to the Mela grounds where these big, big gatherings, Kumbh Melas are. And he thought, oh, okay, because somebody said, oh, yeah, no, this is kind of cool over there. And he said, all right, well, we'll go there. He really wanted to go to Delhi. And that's this famous story where 27 people in a bus were met by Maharaji and uh, a mentor of ours, uh, whose house he stayed at in Allahabad, Dada Mukherjee, who wrote some of the greatest books of about um, two of the greatest books about Maharaji, and uh, Maharaji had told everybody very early in the morning at six o'clock, prepare. There's 27 Westerners coming for lunch, so prepare some food. This was before, as Ramdas recounts before he thought, oh, I should go left or right. And so uh, the idea, you know, that we think that we have any concept that we're controlling anything or is uh, absurd. So that's the kind of teachings, right, that we we would get. In yeah, the- no, it was an amazing experience of synchronicity for me, for all of us, obviously. And that, that, that's sort of how it happened with Maharaji. It was synchronicity for everybody simultaneously, often, mm. you know, yeah. most of the time. And um, But with, uh, I was, the, the galleys for Be Here Now had arrived. I guess they had arrived while we were doing this retreat. And so we were on the bus, and they opened up this book, and they were passing these, you know, blue lines of, of uh, Be Here Now around. And uh, I was sitting behind someone who was sitting next to Ramesh Radas, and uh, it was Jim Litton at that time. And I this is Ramdas's co-author. We, 
uh, just so of his last couple of books, Polishing the Mirror, just so we give some context because yeah, yeah. we're we're so inside uh, of like Krishna and I, we're like gabbing right now, you and I, because we don't get a chance to see each other that often. Uh, at least in the last years, Krishna goes around the world filming for one thing, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute. So we're kind of just gabbing. I, I'd a little. like to move in on this. Yes, um, because, you should because low-hanging fruit squared here. Um, <laughs> See, David's angry now. <laughs> no, I'm really not. Um, no, I, what I wanted to just present you with was just for my, and this is just for me. If you had to, cho- you know, Ramdas talks all the time about when. Um, he first really encountered Maharaji and the and the mind reading, and and then the and then Ramdas's shame, and then the realization of unconditional love. I would like you to tell us and our listeners when that sort of spark happened with you there with Maharaji and how. I mean, in terms of. Again, when you had, you know, an analogous feeling to what Ramdas talks about, that overwhelming love that he'd never felt in any way, shape, or form his entire life, from his parents, from his brothers, from anyone, and then this mm-hmm. this came. So I, I'm intrigued by what how you would, you know. Well, you know, it's uh, of course uh, so many of the experiences were were singularly touching to me and and, and relevant, obviously. Uh, uh, I mean, Maharaji told me continually, "Keep your mind on God." And he would say that to, those he would say those to me at times when my mind was wandering, or when my, or when I was having doubts, or something like. He would, say, he would just turn to me and say, "Keep your mind on God." And it was always at that precise moment that it really was relevant, and that sort of you know still serves me. Um, but you know, there was this. I guess there were. Uh, I guess there were. I mean, like for example, you know. After we had been in India for a couple of years, we were really running out of money. I mean, there, there was even as, expen- as inexpensive as it was, you know. Uh, and a lot of Westerners there were able to stay in India because they, would, from time to time, they would send back a little hash to the West or something like that. Okay, and uh, and that's how they uh, that's how they were able to keep going. And uh, I mean, not a, not a not a criminal enterprise, but just back to friends, and then they would get some money and they could continue living there. So. I thought, well, geez, maybe I should try that because, I mean, I don't know what else I'm going to do. And uh, but then I was really having this kind of torment about it because at the same time, you know, we were in temples and we were doing all the stuff. And this was really in, it was, Maharaji was, you know, it was a, a lot about truth telling, you know. And uh, so I was really conflicted as to whether I should do it or not. And this one time I was said, well, I'm going to ask Maharaji, you know, in so many words, whether I should do this or not. And just as I was about ready to formulate a question that was a little more disguised. He turned to me and he he looked at me and he said, "Always tell the truth, and you'll never be afraid." You know, and I thought, okay, well, I guess I got my answer. <laughs> you know, so uh, that was that that was that was that was touching for me. But you know, I've always you know, like a lot of people, I always have this sort of low grade social paranoia. I oftentimes misinterpret. Uh, things that people are saying me to be something more serious or severe than they are. And I had a good teaching with Maharaji in this regard. I don't mean to make too big a deal about that, but it's just one of these slightly, if you can think of things one way or think of things the other way, maybe I think of it that way. And I know this story, and I was. this is the story I was going to ask you to tell, because everybody goes through this 
every day, one way yeah. or the other. This yeah, illusion, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's uh, projections. It's uh, it's got every uh, you, you know disturbing emotion wrapped up into one thing. It's a beautiful teaching. Please. Oh, thank you, Raghu. Uh, yes. Uh, well, anyway, you know. You remember, I hadn't really come to India to see Ram Dass or Maharaji. That was all just a wonderful gift that had fallen into my fallen into place. But really, I had come to India, and I had fallen in love with India and Indian people and sadhus and you know doing. I mean, lots of times we had time away from Maharaji. He would go away, and then we were able to go out into India. And um, and this was one of those times. It was in uh, we were in Vrindavan, uh, and. Uh, in India, in North India, and in Maharaji's temple, and he was going to be going away for some time. And I was with Mira at that point, Mirabai Bush, who was uh, my girlfriend still at that time, later became my wife through Maharaji's grace, and uh, now still, uh, although we're no longer married, still my deep and close friend. But anyway, we... Um, we were. It was one of these times where Maharaji was going away, and the question is, what are we going to do with the time we were we were away? And so Mira and I were got into this little kind of back and forth that morning uh, about. Well, I really wanted to kind of go out into India. I wanted to go up into the mountains or be with sadhus, and I wanted to, her to come with me. And uh, she wanted to stay with the satsang. At this point, the satsang had kind of changed. It was, instead of being a smaller group of us. Once Be Here Now had come out, sort of anybody that could get on a plane and come over there seemed to be doing that. You know, so all of a sudden there were lots of people, all of them nice people, but a lot of people I didn't really have in common. And a lot of people really didn't like India. They liked Maharaji, they liked Ram Dass, but they didn't like India and they didn't like Indians, you know, at that time. And uh, and I thought, geez, I'd, I'd rather just be in India rather than being with these people because I can be with these people anytime, you know. And uh, so, anyway, we got into this, really, an argument about it in the morning. And, uh, and then we kind of cooled it, and we went to see Maharaji, and we took his darshan. And, you know, getting a name for Maharaji was something everybody kind of looked forward to, and it always seemed to happen for people at a fortuitous time or something synchronistic in their lives. And uh, at this point, I, I hadn't received a name from him, and not, either had Mira. But one day he called Mira up uh, to be to be sitting with him, and I thought, well, that's how wonderful that is. And uh, it was that same day, okay. And uh, and then Maharaji uh, and he talked to Mira for some time, and then they motioned for me to come up, and I sat down. And Radha Baum, our good friend Radha, was there, our sister Radha, and uh, Maharaji said to uh, to uh, Maharaji said, I've just given her the name Mirabai, so Radha. Tell, tell him who Mirabai was. And Radha, Radha told the story. She said, well, and, and I guess she had just heard the story, or I don't know, but she knew the story. And she said that, uh, that Mirabai was, a, um, a queen of, was the queen of Rajasthan, and she was deeply devoted to Lord Krishna. She was a poetess, and she was you know, basically a, a feminist of her time. Uh, but she was married to a, the king, this, uh, one of the kings of Rajasthan, one of the Ranas, and uh, he was very jealous of her love for Krishna, you know. And uh, and uh, so anyway, and and uh, so he said, and her husband tried to actually poison her uh, with 
her, tried to poison her uh, because of her love for Krishna, and uh, but that but that Krishna intervened and the poison didn't affect her, and ultimately she left the king and went in pursuit of Krishna. Okay, so anyway, based on this, what happened earlier that that morning and the fact that I felt like I was asking Vera to come with me and leave Maharaji, who I was identifying as Krishna in the story, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was now the angry, jealous king, and I thought, oh my God, this is my worst nightmare. Yeah. Not only is she eating this beautiful name, but I'm being, put in this, I'm being portrayed as this jealous, you know, sort of villainous person, you know? <laughs> and and uh, I, I just couldn't control myself. I just started... I, I felt the tears welling up in me, and I just excused myself, and I sort of ran out of the temple. I ran out of the courtyard, out into the temple, and stood in front of the Hanuman Murti there, and I just broke down in tears. I just started crying and crying and crying. And, uh, and then Ramdas came out, and he said, what's going on? Why are you acting this way? And I said... I don't want to be the person who keeps my wife from 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 Krishna. I said, I just I, I don't want to be that person. And he said, I think you have a mistake on that on that on what Maharaji was saying. I think it's a mistake. And I remember hearing. I never heard that word mistake before. As like a you know, as just as he had said it, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, I think you should come back and sit with Maharaji and you know, see what he has to say. So I came back and I sat down and. And I was still obviously I had tears on my face, and you know, and he said, he said, what what's going on? You know, what why are you acting this way? And I said, I don't want to be the jealous husband who's keeping my wife from Krishna, you know. And he looked at me and he looked at he sort of put his head to the side and kind of squinted his eyes and he looked at me and he said, Why do you think that way? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I said, and I didn't have an answer, you know, and he said, but he said, her true husband was Krishna, and your name is Krishna, and you should be called by that name, you know, and so then I got my name, but it was only through having gone through this whole sort of purgative experience, you know, uh, and uh, that became sort of my my little mantra. I'm a little it's a mantra for like, everyone. Why do you think that why way? Do you you think know, why, why do you? Why would you? Why do you have this negative idea of who you are? You know, I mean, it was really, you know. Hmm. And you know, I have to say, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, but you know, it's so. Anyway, it, it's it's served me well because I've, I've many times I've had to ask myself yeah. that same question. Yeah. yeah, and I think we all do every day, right? Yes, absolutely. I don't know. It's a long story. I hope it came through okay. No, no, it really did because I actually hadn't heard it before and. I think that uh, it's just a beautiful story because it's so sort of unique, you know. It's just I've never heard anything like that before. And it says a lot. Very, very resonant, to say the least. Um, Can we talk a little bit about the film, which is so phenomenal, even though we've only seen... Well, let's talk... uh, Well, let's first... Yeah, let's introduce the fact that yeah. Krishna, we haven't even introduced your whole, your real resume is yeah, like really. you and I and us, you know, hanging with Maharaji and uh, going to India and just, and then being there when we were back in the States and in Canada. And that's our reference, really. There's no other reference, but we do have other references. And yes. Krishna is an incredible filmmaker and has done a... Uh, a wonderful trilogy 
on uh, Buddhism and Buddhist sites, and uh, which has uh, appeared on PBS nationally, and uh, has gotten enormous acclaim in the Rubin uh, Museum, which is a fantastic museum, by the way, everybody in New York. You all know about it, but if you go visit New York, if you want to see some beautiful Buddhist uh, iconography and so on. And you know what the Reuben was before? It was the Reuben? Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought you might not know. It was Barney's for those million people out there who don't know yes. why we're Barney, absolutely. It was beautiful. I used to hang out there. <laughs> I did too. Um, but anyway. So, uh, so now Krishna has embarked on a beautiful film called Journey Ohm, which takes you through India. And uh, just the damn trailer alone, Krishna, the beauty of it and the music that he's gotten together and the narrative. Tell us a bit about how how did this thing come in your head that you should be doing this? Because you did those three Buddhist movies. Well, it's actually a long-deferred dream of mine. It's something that I've always... I always wanted to make films, but it just was too complicated with film and cutting film and doing it. And so it was really... Uh, so. I had done a lot of photography and, and used to do slide slideshows with different dissolves, dissolve units and music and stuff like that. So I had some experience with doing that with audiences, uh, but, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about it. And then my son, Owen, who was actually truly a, a classically trained filmmaker, went to NYU film school and uh, was really, you know, had the best of all educations that way. Uh, in I think it was 2000, he came to me and said, hey, Dad, you know, you've always had this dream of making these films in Asia. And he said, look, they've just come out with these digital cameras and you can actually, you can do it, you know. And uh, it's hard to believe it was really, really first digital video cameras were really just in this millennium, yeah. you know. Uh, but anyway, he, so anyway, he told me how it worked and actually within... It just coincided with the fact that I was making a transition out of my previous career and I was looking for a, a new something that I really wanted to do. And um, and so anyway, within a few months, I had packed up and I uh, gotten a bunch of equipment and I took my kids out of school and we went uh, to Southeast Asia and I shot uh, my first film there, Dharma River. And it was really... I. Having been in India, I had really seen pilgrimage for the first time. Although I had gone on a pilgrimage, I, mean, I was raised as a Catholic. My sister was born blind uh, when she was born. And we went on a, with my family. We got in a car and we drove to Quebec. And we went to these three shrines in Quebec, St. Anne de Beaupre, uh, the Joseph, St. Joseph's Oratory, and Trois mm. Rivière, you know. And, um, and it was amazing to me. We were like, you know, candlelight processions, walking up these stairs on our knees and kissing relics, and it was all amazing, you know? Right. And it stuck with me, you know? So when I went to India and I saw people on pilgrimage for the first time, by the way, she then recovered sight in one eye after this, mm. and she was able to function oh. all for the rest of her life as a, wow. you know, to drive a car, everything else. So I don't know if it was the pilgrimage, or the, but I think it was also the skilled uh, surgeons that removed the cataracts, but but anyway, when I went to India, I saw pilgrims for the first time again in this way, and I was very touched by it. You know, it's such a prominent reality in India. And I kept seeing these people had spent, who were spending their entire life on pilgrimage. You know, sadhus, of course, always do that. They just move through the sacred geography of India. And, um, but I just kept seeing these sort of faraway 
he looks in people's eyes, you know, and uh, they didn't look like other people. And it just stuck with me. Right. So I felt I really wanted to do something about pilgrimage in my film work. Because it also, I thought, I thought it lent itself to a cinematic approach, obviously. You know, you're moving, it's a moving experience, you're going from place to place, things like this. So, so I decided I really wanted to create films that were themselves cinematic pilgrimages, that would afford the viewer the opportunity to feel that they were, uh, they were visiting these empowered places, these legendary places, you know, in Southeast Asia and Tibet. It was the third one was shot in Tibet. And... Um, and try to create an immersive kind of transformative experience for people through the, the film, through these feature length documentaries. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we spent some, a fair amount of time working with uh, people to see what was working, what wasn't working and found a sort of, sort of recipe for creating these films that would allow people to have an inner journey while they were watching the film, their own inner journey. So when they came out on the other side of the film, they felt that they'd actually gone someplace, not just in an external geography, but within themselves. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I was over there at one point, and I was filming uh, at a at a Kumba Mele, at, which is uh, one of these enormous 10 million, 20 million people gatherings. Uh, so it was no. 100, 100, 100 million last year. 100 million. Jeez. Well, this was uh, uh, 20 years ago. So it's it's yeah, grown yeah, yeah. in leaps and bounds. It's gotten bigger and bigger. But I was shooting uh, some Naga Bob. Nagas are uh, naked uh, sadhus. Uh, and I was shooting them doing yoga. I thought that would be a nice sequence for my little uh, Mela film that I was trying to put together. Uh, and. Uh, I got chased through the camps by these guys <laughs> trying to break my camera. So wow. it was, yeah, it was a bit of an experience because they were really wrathful looking dudes. Boy, oh boy, as you know, when you've seen them there. Um, so tell us, have you had, tell us some, a couple of experiences. I mean, filming as, as much as you've done in Southeast Asia, but particularly for the uh, Journey Home film. Well, you know, uh, what, what it turned out was that the, the thing that I found that I didn't realize when I started doing this was that I was going to be discovering in Southeast Asia and in Tibet itself that these cultures were, in, were completely transformed by the arrival of new concepts of spiritual concepts and practices from India, you know, uh, that these have been animistic cultures prior to about a thousand years ago. And, uh, and then Indian traders were bringing, uh, you know, these practices and, and, and beliefs uh, to Southeast Asia. And it kind of took root. And then it really, you know, over a few centuries, it became very embedded in the culture and completely changed the way, you know, these people. And they were simultaneously Buddhist and Hindu, you know, which is the other surprise to me. I didn't realize. I always thought these were Buddhist countries, but that's a more recent Phenomenon. There used to be a shared culture of Buddhist and and Hindu cultures, which was resonated with me because that's how I was. That's how I came into all of this in India. So I thought it was really interesting that that had happened, and that we were living in sort of an analogous time a thousand years later in the West, where these new practices and 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 uh, and understandings were coming from India to transform our own culture. You know. You remember when we came back, Raghu, when you were describing when we came back, for, you know, 40-some years ago, 
uh, there weren't a lot of people doing meditation or yoga or, or chanting or things like this. And it's amazing to me to watch in that short amount of time, which historically it's not a lot of time, 40 years, and to see how widespread these practices are, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so anyway, so I felt I wanted to go back to India and do this because that's where, for me, where it all started. And it was really always my goal was to, was to ultimately go back and make this film, which is now called Journey Om, Into the Heart of India. And... Um, so I felt I really wanted to go back to the source. I mean, because, you know, these practices are coming here and it's wonderful, but they're sort of getting a little distilled, right? I mean, it's sort of like mindfulness can be you know, make you more efficient and yoga can make you look more beautiful. And, you know, I mean, all of those things are attributes, of course, of those practices, but they're not the essence of them. You know, so I really was looking to go back right. to India. Right. You guys talk about that stuff? Oh yeah, I've, I've heard that on your I've heard that on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different perspectives around that. I don't think we want to get into because I want to hear more uh, about yeah, I, uh, the I, actual filming. But yes, that the the yeah, so the idea of what you're talking about uh, to bring as much consciousness to bear uh, for the uh, the pure substantial. Um, translation of of uh, if, of what India represents, philosophy and uh, and spirituality uh, and otherwise, is a great thing. And visually, is the best way to do it. And uh, uh, so, yeah, in in that way, I think it's a great contribution. And I totally agree uh, because it's uh, you know we water shit down in America. That's all. And <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is that it, it's still there and you can always you can water it down, but maybe you can add some nutrients that can grow even better. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I'm not I certainly don't give up on it that way. But uh, I think the devotional aspect of it is what what I find right. to be the, the missing ingredient. Exactly. And it's, it's one of the things I enjoyed about making the Buddhist films, because pilgrimage is basically a devotional act. And uh, so in these in these Buddhist cultures, uh, the first for the first three films, uh, you would see these people. I mean, it wasn't just they weren't just meditating. I mean, in fact, they probably weren't meditating at all because mostly just the monks meditate. And, but people do these devotional practices, which I found very, uh, very, you know, helpful for a household in your life. You know, and uh, that. And but of course, that's as you know, that's really what happens in India. It's really a. As many as as many yogis, swamis, sadhus, whatever it is, it's still really a householder practice for the most part in India, and so it's very and it's very helpful to us, those of us who are living that kind of life here, you know. So anyway, so I went back and uh, I've been there. For, I shot all together about eight months in India, and I had the good fortune of finding a really good uh, cinematographer, a young guy in his mid twenties. I've previously previously shot all my own films. Uh, but in this case, I wanted to be a director. I really wanted to not always have my face pressed up against the viewfinder. I really wanted to be able to look around, see what was happening, and then sort of tell somebody else how to shoot it. So that was wonderful. And I had a, a, an assistant director, a young woman who had who had you know done who had traveled around India doing this before with other people. So she was able to kind of be a fixer, if you will, and kind of open up some doors that I couldn't have opened myself. But the three of us traveled around uh, as pilgrims ourselves. Uh, they were they were young people in their twenties, uh, and uh, they were uh, 
kind of coming back into this, into their own spiritual tradition, but in a new way, not just because they were with me, but this is something that they had kind of connected to. Like, for example, my cinematographer was really into Jai and Jai Utah and Krishnadas. You know, I mean, the first day we, after I hired him, he said, hey, listen, let's listen to some music. And that's what he played, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we wound up driving all over India, you know, filming this thing. And, uh, mm-hmm. and our soundtrack were all of my old friends, for the most part, because we were listening to his music. And that's the music he was playing. And uh, <laughs> nice. it was really touching to me, honestly. I mean, yeah, I've known KD forever, right? But, uh, but to hear him singing these songs in this context being back in India and going to these places. I mean, I had tears rolling down my face. Honestly, I can't tell you how much it moved me. Mm. So just, I just had to mention that. Yeah, know? no. You know, it's very hard to uh, capture spiritual reality, if you like, on film, having tried it myself a couple of times. Uh, you do it, I think, you know, you don't do it by any kind of didacticism, but by a very beautiful, incredible picture followed through and stayed with. You know, so you get that slower, slowing down rather than chipping away with a million bites of film and sound. Mm-hmm. You don't do that. And that's so incredible because you actually broke through that, that rather difficult piece of glass, shall we say, which separates, you know, just recording people meditating or doing yoga and actually having an atmosphere in the movie which is equally moving. Yeah. You know? Well, it was, you know, there are a lot of reasons for making pilgrimage, and one of them actually is uh, to honor the death of a recent, you know, of a relative, somebody who had just passed away. And as it turned out, two days, two months before I left for this trip, my sister, who I had mentioned before, uh, passed away from cancer at a young age, early 60s. And uh, so I felt like I was carrying her with me on this, uh, on this, on this trip. And, uh, and you know, I love India, and it was just wonderful to kind of reconnect. I, was, I hadn't really ever been in modern India before. I mean, I had been back a few times in the 80s, but I hadn't been back in a while. And uh, I was struck by, you know, I mean, first of all, how large the middle class of India had become. And some people had said to me, they said, do you think India is as spiritual as it used to be? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I said, do you think maybe taking 500 million people out of poverty, I think that's pretty spiritual, you know? <laughs> and that's what that's really what I was seeing. I was seeing a kind of prosperity in India that I'd never seen before. And I was seeing, and that actually was allowing people to go more on pilgrimage. So it turned out, I thought this was something that would be vanishing, but quite to the opposite. It's something that's more popular than ever in India. Like I was mentioning, 100 million people at the Kumbh Mela. It's because people have the means to actually go there now. You know, they go there on vacation. People, people in India, when they go on vacation, they go on a pilgrimage to different places. They're sort of, you know, they pack everybody in the car, grandma, and they go. And it's a way to sort of experience the power of these places, but also sample the local foods and things like this and, you know, meet other, meet other pilgrims and so on. But what I didn't realize that is that in India, which is a very highly structured culture, as you know, it's still a lot of remnants of the caste system still there. Um, uh, you know, major chasms between men and women in different ways at times, you know. Um, but on pilgrimage, really everyone is a yatri. A yatri, you know, yatra, it's, you know very well, Ibaraga is the name of your company, yatra, is means pilgrimage in, in Sanskrit. And yatris are pilgrims, you know. So yatris regard each other as fellow pilgrims, that the normal 
social hierarchies and the kind of difficult social paradoxes of India no longer really exist on pilgrimage. And uh, so people afford each other, I mean, they're really sort of humbled by their approach to the divine presence, you know, and that's really what everybody's mind is focused on. And so in some way, I found this kind of a, a distillation of kind of, a, kind of a utopian reality, you know, and it got me thinking about what this means. And of course, you know, I mean, underlying all of my work, I'm sort of, I want to introduce people to these, to these traditions in, in Asia and particularly in India in this film. But deeper than that is to remind us that we are born pilgrims and we are born on a pilgrimage, you know, yeah. every human being. Yeah. And uh, so it made me feel like if you could see yourself as a pilgrim in life, you know, walking your own spiritual path, then you can see everyone else that way as well. And that really changes our whole social uh, viewpoint, you know. And, uh, and I, think it, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's one of these all-inclusive things. I mean, there's no exceptions. Everybody is born on a spiritual path, whether they choose to recognize it or not. And frankly, I'm not sure it's even necessary for everyone to recognize it. It's almost unautomatic. It's going on. The events of your lives are... Are are forming are, are transforming your 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 being. Right. Fair to right. say. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Fair to say. And well uh, put. Very well put. Yes. And and in, indeed, yeah. it's, again, I go. I always I like the term spark because people have that spark mm -hmm. that makes them understand that reality that everything is absolutely perfectly engaging for you to be free and to be merged back with the true nature whatever you want to call the divine and uh i, I and the, the idea of pilgrimage i take it even further uh because that kind of satsang in pilgrimage right that community of people on the path that is an a, a such a central thing for people to understand in the west if you really are into this and you you have any kind of inclination to 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 follow any of these practices, to just read the philosophy, to see how it applies to helping in, in daily life. The, it's so helpful to have a support of being with people who are interested in that thing. And that's, at, at the big level, that's, Krishna, that's what you're talking about with uh, going on these pilgrimages and the feeling you get where people drop their roles at the door, no matter if they're the Raja or the uh, Sweeper. And, of course, Maharaji used to demonstrate that to us every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every, every day. We can't go any further, though. I'll tell you why. Because we've got to tell you about the crowdfunding Kickstarter campaign that is in process for Journey Home. And uh, uh, you, you'll be able to uh, see the trailer uh, and see some of the images that... Uh, Krishna shot over there, and uh, what's necessary now is he has all the shooting and everything done, um, and now it needs what's, uh, of course, as everyone knows, what post is. He needs to edit this, and he needs to do all sorts of things to uh, to keep it uh, keep the beauty of what these images are, and you'll see that when you see the uh, the trailer. So give us the URL, and uh, of course we'll put that on our on the website as well. But go ahead, Krishna. Well, thank you, Raghu. I appreciate that. I appreciate your 
each of this. It's journey-ohm.com is where you can see. You can see it's, a, it's actually forwarding at this point. That's our website, journey-ohm.com, which is now forwarding to our Kickstarter campaign. Oh, perfect. And uh, you can see my Kickstarter video where I'm actually explaining what we're doing, how we did it, and what we need to do, and this help we need from other people. Uh, basically, it's a chance to, for people to pre-order the film. You know, it's, it's also a transmedia project. It's not just a film. It's a it's an expanded ebook with videos and uh, and uh, interviews with Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Jai, other people. The low hanging uh, fruit, friends. David Pramel, the low hanging fruit, the obvious people. Although David Pramel and Mitten, I just but met you and can't, they're wonderful. You can't get this kind of. That's the point about the when we say the low hanging fruit, you'll never get this kind of low hanging fruit at any other grocery store. <laughs> so anyway, so um, uh, so yeah, so there's an expanded ebook. There's also a, a, a soundtrack album. So hmm. it's possible to pre-order all of these things, which in in fact allows me then to make the film. So actually, right. by pre-ordering them, you're actually helping to create the film, which I find is the nice thing about crowdfunding. I mean, yeah. it really is a participatory possibility yeah, in this way. certainly a community. And in this case, obviously, getting this film made and supporting what Krishna is doing is one level of it and, and a supremely important level. But the other level of it is being able to be part of something that will that people can connect with here in the West that haven't had a chance to, to uh, feel what it's like. You can actually feel, especially if... Uh, uh, Krishna, I'm sure, will get it on a big screen somewhere, where and with with that, uh, you know, a beautiful big sound system, and you actually like are in the pilgrimage yourself. I mean, it is uh, that powerful. So to be part of something like that that gets shared, I think, is just as important as, of course, the direct support for you to be able to finish this. So um, go to uh, say it again. Journey dash om. Journey-ohm.com. And Krishna, this is uh, terrific. Uh, I'm sorry, folks. I'm, I'm apologizing, and you too, David, for sort of just catching up. It was like Krishna and I were catching up a little bit. I'm, it's I'm, okay. I've got a good book here, and I'm... <laughs> <laughs> no, I would, I would say it's always, it's always just so compelling to hear everything, every detail of of these tr of these incredible interactions so thank you so much really sincerely it's wonderful to hear this and and i just simply want to say as a filmmaker of almost five decades now um the f the quality of this of this film just from the trailer which is all i've seen is just so immersive we've been saying it we can't say it enough it's immersive it takes you there so it's not just a film on hbo about something this is an experience. It's a pilgrimage, and it can be very profoundly effective, I'm sure. So we highly recommend you go to the link uh, as soon as you can. Yes, and go to mindpodnetwork.com, and you'll catch all of, a, all of the different podcasters. Soon to come, actually, Islama Suryadas, who's joining <clears throat> the, uh, the network. And this is Mind Rolling, and David and I thank you, Krishna, for Thanks, joining Krishna. us. And, uh, thank you so much. And I just, I just 
David, I just have to say how much I enjoy your commentary. And we haven't, I haven't heard that much from you in this time, but I am a big fan of your experiences and what you have to say about cultural transformation. I mean, you're an enormously astute person, and I just really want to, I don't have a chance to say that to you face to face, and I really want to say that I really, really do appreciate what you, what you contribute. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. See you, uh, see you next week, everybody.